Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, Biogen's Al Sandrock writes an open letter to the Alzheimer's community. Mastering Master Protocols, Lessons from COVID, and Pfizer and our Venus in one of the biggest protein degradation deals to date. Let's turn to Aduhelm. This therapy was approved on June 7th. It's now July 26th, and the drug has gone through more controversy and <laughs> hand-wringing than many drugs go through in their life cycle. In the latest, we have seen FDA narrow the drug's label to be more consistent with clinical trial data. However, the agency appears to have disregarded Biogen's call for a diagnostic to go along with the therapy. Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock requested an independent investigation of FDA's interactions with Biogen during the review of the drug. And then in the past week, an ICER panel voted unanimously that evidence to demonstrate the drug's health benefit is lacking, and the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai said they will not administer the therapy. Multiple members of Congress have called for hearings and investigations, and meanwhile, CMS is conducting a national coverage determination analysis to decide whether Medicare will establish a coverage policy for Aduhelm and future amyloid-targeting monoclonal antibodies. In the latest, last week, Biogen's head of R&D, Al Sandrock, wrote a letter that coincided with Biogen's earnings, in which the company said it had sold $2 million worth of the drug in its early weeks. His letter aimed to dispel what he called extensive misinformation and misunderstanding about the drug circulating among patients, caregivers, and physicians. Selena, you've followed this therapy for years now. Did his letter have its intended effect? Well, time will tell, but I think you got to the heart of it, Jeff. There's just been such a steady drumbeat of negative news from every direction, different sources, day after day, week after week. One letter from Sandrock probably isn't enough to outweigh all of that negative news, but it seemed like Biogen probably felt that this news could very well influence patients and caregivers and their likeliness to take the drug. And it was an attempt to just try to speak directly to the patient community and try to quell some of their concerns. It did seem to me that the letter had really kept its messaging very high level. You wrote a story on this last week saying that his letter really left any nuance out of the discussion. Do you think that that will exacerbate the confusion among its intended audience? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, when I first read it, I was scratching my head being like, why, who, who is this going to convince? He says so little in here, but then he's not really talking about sophisticated drug developers or people who watch this very closely necessarily, right? He's speaking to the general public. And so in that case, simple messages can be very useful. But on the other hand, there's so much attention and so much scrutiny on this particular drug and how it was developed that people might have more insight into the details than they normally do. One thing he wanted to say is that there's a misconception that all drugs before aducanumab failed to lower amyloid levels in the brain and therefore 
the fact that they didn't work in terms of their clinical benefit, that has no bearing on aducanumab whatsoever or on future therapies. That could be a powerful message. On the other hand, on the face of it, it seems to sort of undermine FDA's rationale for using amyloid as a surrogate endpoint because that rested on more than Biogen's data, right? It's true that a lot of amyloid therapies, whether they're targeted amyloid directly or targeted the enzymes that produce it, they didn't appreciably lower amyloid levels in the brain. So yes, they didn't test their hypotheses, therefore they don't help or hurt the amyloid hypothesis, but that also means they can't serve as support for amyloid as a surrogate endpoint. And what was new in this approval was the acceptance of amyloid as being a predictive marker for clinical benefit. So what FDA did is they said, okay, well, in very recent history, there've been a couple of early stage studies from other agents that seem to show some clinical benefit and very strong amyloid lowering. So now between Biogen's data and maybe the surrogate marker is appropriate, but he didn't bring that up at all in his letter, which would have been a powerful argument. Yeah. And CMS is holding a listening session as part of its national coverage determination analysis tomorrow. Anyone can tune into that and get the latest on how CMS is thinking. My sense from speaking with you many times about this, Selena, is that this is going to be a fairly slow rollout. At least the bio Twitterati have received this latest episode quite harshly. Jay Olson of Oppenheimer opened the Q&A session of the Biogen earnings call by blaming the media, calling coverage of Aduhelm an assault. The company's CEO agrees with him and thanks for <laughs> thanks him for saying it. And then people, of course, immediately said that was scripted. It was a plant. And others were even harsher, but I don't think we need to go into that here. So we'll continue to follow this. Lots of surprises since the approval. And anyone's guess what could happen next. Let's turn to master protocols. Lauren, you follow this since the beginning of the pandemic. One trial in particular that you followed is the UK's recovery trial, which you've written was pretty big success. You looked at recovery and 15 other master protocol studies. How did the others fare? So recovery was definitely an exception in its success. And I think the remap cap trial, which was a trial that was sitting and waiting for some sort of a pandemic or an epidemic is also another success story. But for the most part, I don't think that these master protocols fared as well as people had hoped. At the beginning, this seemed like the answer to the question of how we find new therapies for COVID-19. When the pandemic started, there were so many small trials that were being set up and they weren't properly statistically powered and It was a fight to get patients, and it seemed as though these trials that would be able to recruit a lot of patients and test these drugs in a systematic way would be the best bet. But we started to hear as we went into last fall and the winter that a lot of the trials were actually competing with these smaller studies to attract patients, and the readouts were slower than expected. I think over half of the 16 studies that we looked into didn't actually report any data from the sources that we used. We checked clinicaltrials.gov and some of the databases for clinical research. I think there were nine readouts from each of recovery and REMAP-CAP and a few others across some of the other master protocol studies. Those did turn out to be really successful. Unfortunately, a lot of the readouts 
were negative. That was also important in the pandemic because we learned which therapies shouldn't be used. And there were a few exceptions to that. There were a few positive readouts. What were some of the characteristics between remap cap and recovery that you think made them successful? The one thing that they both have in common is that the UK government decided to name these as priority trials. They had them set up at tons of hospitals throughout the UK. And this was just a part of the standard care for in many hospitals for COVID-19 patients. So the number of participants recruited in these trials was amazing. REMAP-CAP is an international trial. The UK was just a part of that. And I know that the arm of the trial in the US was well incorporated into the electronic medical record system of the hospital system that it was a part of. And I think that's something that can help with all clinical trials, making it easier for physicians and participants to participate in the trial. I think it was really a matter of patient recruitment because with something like COVID-19, there's not going to be, now we believe there's not going to be some cure. There's not something that you can give to everyone that's going to make everyone better. The effect sizes are going to be small and you're looking for something that doesn't cause harm that can help some patients to some extent. You need a lot of people to figure that out. What's going on with the trials now that are still running? Most of them are still up and running. And I think at the start of the pandemic, there was a lot of trial arms that were testing repurposed antivirals. And then there was a move into immune mediators. And if you look at the the positive readouts, immune mediators were definitely the most successful. You had dexamethasone and a few others that were more specific that followed. Now, the trials that are still going, the broad trials are definitely looking at more specific mechanisms. There's a lot of immune mediators. There are a lot of anticoagulants and things like antihypertensives and therapies for diabetes, therapies that protect the lungs. So I think there's a broader range of treatments and these trials are looking to answer more specific questions. And there have also been new trials that have started up even this year that are just for anticoagulants or or just for one specific class of therapies. There are definitely still more treatments needed. All right. Well, keep an eye on those readouts and definitely keep reporting on it. You can find Lauren's story on biocentry.com, and it's one of our featured stories from last week. Let's turn to our deal in focus. Seven months after our Venus disclosed the first efficacy data for ARV 471, longtime partner Pfizer committed $1 billion up front in a deal designed to position the oral selective estrogen receptor degrader as an endocrine backbone therapy for breast cancer patients across the treatment paradigm. The partners believe the therapy is potentially best in class, that it could improve on current standard of care for these patients, especially in combination with a CDK4, CDK6 inhibitor. And pending further data, they believe it could be approved initially as monotherapy or in combinations as second or third line therapy. The transaction is the latest and largest vote of confidence in the targeted protein degradation sector, which has increasingly drawn investor interest as a handful of companies has delivered on early clinical and preclinical milestones. Other startups have launched. We've seen a few go public. And this deal, though, is the largest to date. For example, last July, in a deal between Sanofi and Chimera for more than $2 billion in BioBucks, Chimera's upfront was $150 million. An earlier Arvenus deal with Bayer 
had a $17 million upfront. Pfizer will pay our Venus $650 million in upfront cash and invest $350 million to acquire a 7% stake in the biotech. Our Venus is eligible for, let's see here, $1.4 billion in potential milestones. Lauren, you follow the protein degradation space for a while now. What stands out to you about this Arvenus program? Well, Arvenus has been a pioneer in the space. They're the first company to have data, I believe, on a, a protact type small molecule type therapy. And I think the deal value in this is not necessarily about the modality, about the mechanism. It's about the fact that everyone's been looking for an oral selective estrogen receptor degrader. And the data for this look really good. There's a huge potential market for this. The only approved CERD is fulvestrin, I believe. That's not oral. And this seems to even knock down the target better than that. So it's a big vote of confidence for the entire platform, but also it's an established indication and the big potential market. We've seen with a lot of these deals that these are centered on specific targeted degraders. There are exceptions, but they're not huge sweeping platform deals. And I think it's going to come down to where these fit into specific indications. All right. And then for our Venus, they have a few other programs that they are developing. And this certainly gives them some money to move its other lead program, ARV 110 ahead. That targets androgen receptor. Pfizer and our Venus began collaborating in January 2018, and well, clearly Pfizer has liked what it's seen. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening.